All right, let's go Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, if you uh, like to bookmark stuff, we'll also spend a little bit of time towards the end of our time together in Psalm 67. So Acts 1 and Psalm 67. Uh, those of you with physical Bibles with ribbons get to use your ribbon today. All right. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me, I think, maybe. Uh, it's kind of dark right now, but who knows? All right. Uh, and if you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen. Also, I think, maybe, but we'll see. All right. Uh, but you should have brought your Bible if that's, uh, if that's something you were leaning on. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, if you don't want to have one that you can call yours, uh, we like giving Bibles away around here, like actual physical hardcover Bibles that look pretty. They're black with gold binding on them. It's so pretty. All right. Uh, but we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. And so uh, we, if you don't have a Bible that you can call your own, we can uh, give you one before you uh, walk out the door here. So we have spent the last two months now uh, walking through and applying uh, walking through a short series and applying uh, the why question to, to all of the things, or at least a bunch of the things that we would do uh, during a normal weekly church gathering, a church service, if you want to call it that. Um, and so uh, many of the pieces and the postures of what we do on a weekly basis around here and uh, things that that you know, people would immediately identify uh, that's what a church service is. And so uh, we're kind of channeling our inner four-year-old or inner toddler uh, for a while and just asking the why question. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? Or, or maybe more specifically, why do we do this thing in that specific way? All right. And so we're just kind of asking that why question over and over again. And our hope is to, to not only make some sense out of why we do these things, the reasoning behind why we do these things, but to, you know, the best case scenario is to actually uh, begin to, to understand these things in such a way that we come to love them as good things that have been handed down to us, entrusted down to us, something that somebody had thought through at some other point in time, whether that was only a couple of months ago or that was a couple of generations ago, somebody put some thought into it and said, this is the best way to walk. And so what, maybe we kind of dumb lucked our way into to doing those things, but, but for whatever reason, God has kind of protected us and, and it's just been good. And so our hope is to not just understand these things, but actually come to, to love these things. And so we want to lean in to them whenever they prove themselves to be good things. All right, that's what we want to do. And so we have faithfully navigated our, our path through a number of topics so far. We, 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 you know, we talked about why we proclaim the scriptures and why we gather at all. Like that's something that, that, that some people just assume is, is like something we do when we can. No, it's a, it's a fundamental piece of who we are as a people. We are a gathered church. And so uh, we talked about that. We talked about why we proclaim. We talked about why we sing. Uh, we talked about uh, why it's important for us to, to, to do things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, with the whole congregation gathered. Those, don't, those aren't just actions for the sake of actions. Those have a congregational piece to them. And then last week, last week we talked about the posture of hospitality, right? The posture of hospitality, uh, specifically hospitality in the church. We saw that, that hospitality is, is not the same thing at all to its close cousin called entertaining, right? Those things have a lot of the same actions, but they, they flow from entirely different postures. And so uh, despite having nothing at all to offer back to him, Jesus has shown us a spectacular welcoming, right? He, he provided for our need and drew us close to himself. And, and so hospitality in the biblical sense has nothing to do with entertaining. It can have some, some similarities, but they are not the same thing at all because they stem from entirely different things. And so uh, just like 
just like hospitality, though, I want to, um, just like it's a, a posture that leads to a thousand actions, I, I want to look at one last thing this morning. Another posture that leads to actions, and call it item number nine, if you will. Um, but I think it bears a lot of weight on who we are and how we do church, if you want to call it that. Um, this morning I wanted to look at why we send and go. Why we send and go. Or we can say it another way. Um, I think that a mission-first posture is a fundamental piece of what God calls every single church to be. A mission-first posture is what God is a fundamental piece of what God calls every church to be. And I think I can show you that in the text. So join me in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. So uh, at this point in the story, if you don't understand the context, Jesus has, has been put to death on the cross. He's been buried in a borrowed tomb. And then uh, by Sunday morning, he's suddenly alive again. All right? As you can probably imagine, that caused some things to get said. All right? uh, that caused a little bit of a stir in the city. And so we're told that over the next 40 days, Jesus made several appearances, not only to the 12 disciples, but also to many of his other followers. And then Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared one time to over 500 people. Like, that's, that's a big deal. Jesus' resurrection appearances are far from some singular, isolated event. He's proven that he's not just some ghost. He's, he's, he's been bodily raised, right? He's been eating fish for breakfast and allowing dudes to poke him in the side, right? And so, like, he, he's actually been raised from the dead. He's gently restored Peter by this point, even though Peter's part in the crucifixion story was an absolute train wreck, right? right? Proving that there's grace and restoration even for the train wreck, um, Jesus has also on multiple occasions by this point proven that they don't know their Bibles very well because if they did know their Bibles very well, they wouldn't have been so surprised by what Jesus came to do. All right? That's kind of Luke's aim in his gospel account. This is, uh, Jesus' role as, as the spotless lamb who was slain and then raised again, it wouldn't have caught them off guards if they had only believed Moses and the prophets. And now in Acts 1... We finally made it to the end of that 40-day period, and Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, and he, he's promised the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is a gigantic deal that we don't have time to get into. But we see this happen in verse 6. Acts 1, starting in verse 6, Jesus says, or we see this, Luke tells us this. He says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. All right, so what do we see here? Like, what, what, what jumps off the page to us? Well, we still see that despite all the things that they've walked through, they still are thinking in terms of earthly kingdoms, right? Like that's what's going on. After, after three years of public ministry with Jesus, after watching him willingly and even joyfully go to his death on the cross, after experiencing about six-ish weeks of Jesus ain't dead anymore moments, they're still somehow missing the point. Right? They still think that Jesus' greatest work involves like earthly thrones and the overthrow of all their political enemies. That's still what they're aiming at here. Hey, Jesus, now, 
Now that you so thoroughly handled that you know, sin and death thing for us, how about, you, how about you do something about our real problem here, those dirty old Romans? It's high time for Israel to rise again. Come from a part of the country that that gets said a lot. I mean, think about it, Jesus. We do a lot of really good things if you would finally take your place on this earthly throne. Got some plans. You need a good number two, right? I don't, I don't think the disciples were especially dense. And to be clear, they, they were mostly uneducated common men, but they're not stupid. Far from it, actually. Like Later on, once Jesus finally straightens out, these guys are going to turn the world upside down. Use them powerfully. So then why the disconnect here? What's going on in their heads, in their hearts, that causes them to, to miss this so terribly? Like, why are they still so focused on an earthly kingdom, even while standing next to the king who just changed their eternal realities? What, what, what's with the disconnect? I think it's because the disciples were actually normal people. I think, I think it's because they're, they're normal people. They... They thought that their greatest need from Jesus was the problem they were currently looking at. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm guilty of that more often than I like to admit. Anybody else? See, there are more times than I can count where I've taken my eyes off of kingdom realities and chosen instead to chase after what I think will make my life immediately easier and more comfortable. Or am I the only guy that does that? There are more times than I can count where I've ignored, completely ignored, the clear calling of God on my life because I was more focused on solving some temporary, secondary, or tertiary problem that seemed more important to me in that moment. I'm definitely the only guy that does that, right? See, I think the disciples missed the mark here for the exact same reason. Like, literally the exact same reason that each of us sometimes miss it as badly as they did. We downplay what Jesus has actually called us to and we elevate our own personal agendas. Right? We downplay the clear commands of God and the expectations that he has placed upon our heart and our lives and we elevate the squabble. We do this individually, we do this in our families, and sometimes, honestly, we do this as a church, right? We can get distracted from what our, our God-given mission is, and instead we spend all of our time and our attention and our resources on lesser temporary concerns. But no matter what we're talking about in life, I don't know if you've noticed this yourself, I've got some brilliant, wise counsel for you. No matter what we're talking about in life, what you're aiming at will always change the direction you shoot. Brilliant, right? Like it's so obvious that it feels ridiculous to say that out loud. Except for the fact that we always seem to forget that reality the moment it actually matters. Definitely the only one that does that. 
a subtle shift away from our mission, even by just a degree, will always, and I mean always, flesh itself out in chasing after and celebrating something other than what we've actually been called to chase after and celebrate. Even good things, like really good things. If God has called us to make something primary, our attention to even good secondary things as primary is always going to cost us something. Always. The subtle shift to some other really good secondary thing will always lead us astray. The disciples, they ask Jesus if he's finally ready to restore Israel to her glory days. And, and what does Jesus tell them? He says, hey, it's not your job to know times and seasons. Right? That's what he says. That's not your call. It's none of your business. That's the Father's job. If he wants to raise up one kingdom and tear down another this weekend, that's his call, not yours. The disciples, man, they're, they're ready to, to flex some power here, right? They, they, I mean, think about what they've just witnessed, right? They, they know that they're sitting on some dynamite here, and they're ready to do something with it. And so Jesus continues in verse 8 here. He says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He says, you want earthly power? I've got an even greater power for you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and enable you to do everything I'm commanding you to do, calling you to do. You are to be my witnesses. My witnesses. Your job is not to know when earthly kingdoms will rise and fall. Your job is to tell everyone making up all of the earthly kingdoms out there about me and the reign I have over an eternal kingdom. That's your job. Tell all the other kingdoms about the king who has now arrived. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And there is no telling how much ink has been spilled over this verse in those locations. All right. Um, the more commentaries you have and the more study Bibles you have, the more opinions you've got over what people think that verse 8 means here. So everybody's got an, an opinion to share on Acts 1-8. And so people usually want to try to make it as some kind of grandiose blueprint for the cause of missions work. All right? uh, in other words, we'll focus on this location. And then once we get things kind of solid here, that'll then allow us to focus on this location over there. And so step one will lead to step two and then step three and step four and so forth, right? That's typically how that goes. And so others, though, they look at verse 8 here, and I think probably rightly have pointed out that the book of Acts kind of follows this same trajectory. Right? A lot of other people want to uh, point to verse 8 and say, yeah, yeah, that's the point. It's a, it's, a, it's a roadmap for what they're about to experience throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And, so, uh, and that's kind of true. The church began in Jerusalem, and then, then it spread out from there to the larger region of Judea and neighboring Samaria. And then after that, pretty much the kind of the back half of the book of Acts is uh, really about Paul and his disciples taking the gospel to all the other parts, or, or at least some other parts of the Roman Empire. That's kind of the way the book of Acts plays out if you're familiar with it. That theory kind of makes some sense. I get it. The problem, though, with trying to make that theory the exegetical point of Acts 1-8 is that it really seems to ignore the reality 
that um, the early church was largely disobedient to what God had called them to do. An argument can be made, a pretty solid argument can be made that the persecution that we see happen in Acts 8 that scatters the church to all these other places, we can make the argument that that, that was God finally moving them. I think it's the best argument. The early church, man, they seemed reticent to step out of what was comfortable to them and finally be obedient until the day that, well, the persecution heated up and everybody scattered. God finally got them to move. So while verse 8 does technically give us a trajectory for the rest of the book of Acts, I I mean, that's not untrue. I, I personally think, though, that the best way to interpret it is to kind of read it the way that the original audience would have probably heard it. Um, when Jesus is saying these words to them, they're standing on the Mount of Olives just outside of the city of Jerusalem. Um, and, and so when, when he says, go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, like they're looking at the city. Like it's just there. <laughs> like they could probably throw a rock and hit the wall. And so when, when Jesus says, hey, go be my witnesses there, like it's, go, go be my witnesses where you are. Like I put you here do something with it, right? We can step away from the disciples for a second. Like, that's no less true for us. Like, this doesn't have to be a, a, a first century thing. This is a God's people at all times thing. If God have, has put you somewhere, then that means it's your job to be a witness wherever he has put you, Right? be a witness to Jesus in that location. But it's not just that location. Jesus didn't just limit it to Jerusalem. What does he say? He tells him to be witnesses in Judea too. Judea was uh, the name of the Roman province that Jerusalem was in. It it had a lot more history than that, but that's kind of the, the way it was used in the first century. And so it was the location of most of the Jews. Uh, the, the diaspora had scattered some Jews well beyond just Judea. That's certainly true. But most of the Jews lived in the region, in the, the province of Judea. And so, um, all of the remaining disciples, the other 11, uh, we think were from Galilee, which was a Judean village, all right? And so it's just kind of a part of their region. And so witnessing, this witnessing to Jesus wasn't restrained to the one location they were in. It, it moved out from that location to all the other locations, right? In other words, I mean, get entrepreneurial about this. Like, start thinking of next steps now. The kingdom goes forward. You got a little satellite that pops up here and pops up there and pops up in all these other places, like a chain restaurant or something. I don't know. But then Jesus expressly mentions Samaria here, and I love that he mentions Samaria here. I love it. Um, The reason for that is this. By Roman accounting, Samaria was a part of the region of Judea. But by Jewish accounting, not at all. They don't like the Samaritans. They got beef. All right? They don't associate with them. They don't partner with them. They don't do anything with them. Who cares what the Romans think? They're not one of us. All right? And so if Jesus had not expressly mentioned Samaria, uh, the scholarly Jew might go, yeah, but then there's the Samaritans. He just cuts their legs out from under them. I love 
that he cuts their legs out from under them. Whatever might have kept them at arm's length before now is less than a back burner issue. It's gone. It's completely gone. It says, my calling on you supersedes all of your cultural problems and your nonsense. That's probably not good for that microphone. I'll put that there. All right. It says, my calling on you supersedes all of that stuff. And so your job is to go tell them about me and what I've done. Who cares what problems you've got? Who cares what beef you think you have? you got a job to do. They need to know about me. But then finally, Jesus takes it to the last step. He says, you're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. There's some higher level scholarly debate over whether or not Jesus means the entire world in that moment or if he's just kind of speaking of the rest of the Roman Empire. Uh, We could say it this way, the rest of the known world. Um, And if... If you hold exclusively to the, you know, the Acts 1-8 is just the trajectory for the rest of the book of Acts view, well, then you kind of have to land there, that it's just the known world. Uh, and to be fair, we, we do see that the gospel kind of makes its way to some of the furthest reaches of the empire by the end of the book of Acts. That's absolutely true. Um, but there's also a lot of the empire that the, book of, that the gospel doesn't make it to before the end of the book of Acts. In fact, the majority of the empire. Um, It worked its way through the eastern half of the Roman Empire, but there wasn't much, if anything at all, going on north and west of the city of Rome. If you look at a map of the Roman Empire, there's a lot north and west. A whole bunch. Paul Paul had worked several years after the book of Acts comes to an end before we know that he dies. Um, But as far as we know, the gospel doesn't even make it to Spain before he's eventually executed. Let alone let alone places like Gaul and Britain. And so, again, I'm inclined to think that, that Jesus is speaking here of something much broader and, and than just the Roman Empire. And secondly, I'm really thankful that he is. Right? I don't know if you know this. This ain't Rome. Right? See, every Christian in this room is a beneficiary of a gospel message that was not limited to the Roman Empire. The good news eventually made its way all the way to us. That's great news. The Holy Spirit continued to work powerfully through generation after generation of God's people to be witnesses of Jesus, both in the locations that God had placed them and to the ends of the earth. But if you're a thinking person, you might be noticing that there is a new dilemma that emerges out of that reality. Because if, if Jesus' command 2,000 years ago was that all of his people would be involved in taking the gospel to every corner of the world, or we could say it in a more Matthew 28 kind of way, that we are all to make disciples of all nations, all peoples, then that means that the job ain't done yet. Right? Why? Because there are corners of this world that don't have a witness. 
There are corners of this world that do not have a witness. There are people who will be born, who will live their entire lives, and then die never having the opportunity to hear the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. I think I've got some slides for us this morning. An organization called the Joshua Project estimates that there are roughly 17,400 distinct people groups uh, in the world. And, and, and that's obviously an estimation for sure. But like when you start attempting to uh, you know, divide it out by location and by culture and by language, they come up with roughly 17,400 distinct people groups. They also estimate that more than 7,400 people, people groups uh, are considered unreached, meaning that they do not have enough believers in their culture to evangelize themselves. Usually that means less than 2%. Some, obviously, of those groups have peoples from other cultures attempting to reach them. We call those people missionaries, right? But the culture isn't considered reach until it has an indigenous church producing its own missionaries. Most of those 7,400 people groups don't even have missionaries attempting to reach them. And so that leads us to slide two there. It says 41% of the world's population has zero access to the gospel. There's so little work going on there, if any at all, that the majority of the people in that group have zero chance of hearing the gospel before they die. They don't even have the chance to respond to Jesus in saving faith. And so I'm just going to stay quiet for a second and let that take its full effect. Right? Like, does that need to be hashed out at all? Or is that, is that weighty enough on its own? Now, some, some would point to those kind of statistics and immediately launch into guilt trip mode. Just be honest, we, we don't do that so well here. But church family, what we cannot do, oh, what we cannot do is look at those kinds of statistics and then spend all of our time and our attention and our resources chasing after secondary and tertiary issues. Right? We can't get caught up in chasing after things that don't fix this. We got to do something. Now, don't, don't mishear me. We, doctrine must be defended. There are plenty of hills worth dying on. On top of that, it is neither wrong nor sinful to spend attention and resources on what we're doing here. We have an equal calling on our lives to make disciples, like faithfully make disciples in our Jerusalem and our Judea. That's important too. God has placed us here. We got a job to do here. But what we're aiming at will always change the direction we shoot. Right? And the reality is that a subtle shift away from our actual mission will always, always, always flesh itself out in chasing after and celebrating the wrong thing. Something 
less than what we've actually been called to chase after and celebrate. A mission-first posture is a fundamental piece of what God calls every single church to be. It's fundamental because it directs our aim and it influences everything coming after it. So we try to make a regular habit around here of, of sending and going. Try to make that a normal rhythm here, partially in an attempt to, to be obedient to King Jesus and partially because we want as many as possible to know him too, but also partially because we know that the moment, the very moment we prioritize something other than the mission that he's given us is the exact moment that we will start down a pathway we don't want to go down. We guard our identity as a church by treating our one job to do as if it you know, were our, actually our one job to do. So, so how do we get better at this stuff, right? Like how do, we, how, do, how do we work to make this kind of stuff a greater priority at the, at the church level? Well, some of the ways that you think of we're actually pretty good at. Like there's a lot to celebrate here. Um, we're, we're pretty good around here at, at putting giving needs in front of you and, and then just stepping back. And believe it or not, y'all are even better at responding to those giving needs. Like sometimes I can't keep up. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, time and time again over the years, we have watched God do one amazing thing after another through the, the combined generosity of our people. That is absolutely clear here. And so like even in the last few weeks, we've, we've, uh, uh, you've begun to step up yet again as we put two new needs in front of you, right? Milford and Mongolia. Those things are on a roll towards being met. And I have no doubt that those things will eventually be met because y'all are you. And I'm so impressed by that. Resourcing the kingdom work of others is a massive, massive part of the greater effort to send. We're definitely good at that part. There's no doubt that we're good at that part. But that doesn't mean we're good at everything. We're not as good as we wish we were when it comes to the going of people. We're just not. And to be fair, COVID wrecked a lot of plans that we've tried to make over the last year and a half, coming up on two years. The real world doesn't play out in a vacuum. I stood right here in January and tried to cast a big vision for all these grand summer mission plans, right? Those things aren't happening either. COVID kicked them to the curb. I wish we could have done some of those things. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we'll end up letting these past two years wreck a lot more. Um... We'll allow the posture of I just can't right now to become normative. We'll allow things that are hurdles in this season to become walls in future seasons. We have to figure out a way to jump over the hurdles, whatever they are, and prioritize what God has called us to prioritize. Because just like the disciples before me, I'm sometimes guilty of downplaying what Jesus has actually called me to and commanded me to and elevating my own personal agendas and concerns. I'm guilty of that. So how do we begin to fix the priority drift? 
Like, what can we actually do about it? Well, for starters, uh, we're going to start doing a better job of putting the ends of the earth in front of you. See, a lot of the time, the priority shift is a direct result of the mission being out of sight, out of mind. It's just kind of the way the, the head works. And so nobody is looking at 41% of the global population has no access to the gospel. Nobody looks at that and goes, yeah, I just don't care. The problem is that we don't really think about it at all. We allow other things that are here to distract us from the massive thing over there. So we're going to start working a little harder to put the ends of the earth in front of you. We're going to flood you this week uh, with some resources by email and by social media. We're just going to put all kinds of things out there for you to, to grab a hold of. Uh, also in your bulletin this week and starting from now on, uh, we've got a new effort to highlight uh, a kind of a missions prayer emphasis. And so if you got a copy of the digital resources this morning, it's already there. We, we've already hit the go button on that. I've also got some other things. Slide number, hit the next slide. Yeah, this thing right here, it's actually this thing right here. It's a big old book. <laughs> it's called Operation World. This is my copy. You can't have it. I'll let you thumb through it, though. Uh, there's also a copy out there on the bookshelf. Um, I love this resource, like a lot. Um, it goes country by country with statistics about... Uh, the church in those places and prayer prompts, all those kinds of things. You can also see that they've got a mobile app that's free. This costs money. The mobile app is free. All right? And so you can go like right now into your app store and find Operation World and it'll give you like different things to pray for every day from different countries. But we got another one. Look at the next slide. If you want to specifically highlight unreached people groups, I recommend the Joshua Project. They've got a, a website, uh, but they also have an app, which is also free. Like nobody can complain that I asked them to pay for something, right? And so uh, if you can go in and dial in uh, what part of the day you want it to like give you a notification to pray for a specific people group every day. Like it's an easy thing to do to put this in front of your face on a daily basis. Both of these resources are daily basis kind of things. And so, hey, do you, do you think that God maybe, just maybe, might actually stir some things in your heart and begin to attach some things in your heart and life when you're pressing into something on a daily basis? Is that how the, the world works for the rest of the things in our life? I think it is. Finally, it's also a good time, or at least as good a time as any, to go ahead and announce that we're working on a new long-term missions partnership. Um, got one more slide there. These are the Odoms, TJ and Dina. They're IMB missionaries in Glasgow, Scotland. Um, some of you might know them better because before that, they were collegiate-focused church planters in Boston. We got people in this room right now who have had the Odoms over for supper. We know these folk. We know what they're doing. We know what they're working on. We know what God has called them to Churches across the BCE right now are our New England partnership. We're striking up uh, strategic partnerships with IMB personnel across Western Europe, and and, and so we've asked to uh, we've been asked to consider doing the same thing, partially because Western Europe is a lot like New England in a lot of ways. I think we got something to offer when it comes to mission work. Also, though, because it's high time that churches in New England started sending missionaries rather than just receiving missionaries. Like that's something that, that, that we need to be about because that's how a church actually reaches maturity. Instead of being the ones with their hands out, we're the ones who give. 
right? And so over the course of several months now and several conversations, it looks like God is maybe beginning to help us strike up a partnership with what the, the Odoms are, are doing. They're church planters there, and we're, we're beginning to figure out how we can be helpful to them. And I can tell you already that I'm really impressed with what they're doing because they're not trying to start flashy churches. They're trying to start healthy, reproducing churches. That's exactly the kind of thing that we want to be, and that's the kind of thing that we want to help others be. So you're going to start hearing a lot more about Scotland and the Odoms down the road. We're working on some stuff. Don't know exactly what all those things will look like, but it's going to look like something. We'll get it there. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. While all of these resources can be really, really good tools, they are never the best fuel. Right? Like, <laughs> to just throw a bunch of needs at people, that, that, that exhausts you. And all we're going to do is cause people to burn out. And so what we need is an inexhaustible fuel source. Hey, anybody want to guess where we go to for an inexhaustible fuel source? Join me in Psalm 67. Got one more text for you this morning. We're going to move quick. Psalm 67. The psalmist says this, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. All right, so pop quiz. What is the inexhaustible fuel for the task of missions? What is the only thing capable of actually sustaining disciple-making to the ends of the earth? It's the glory of God. It's the glory of God. It is a hunger for the expansion of his fame to all peoples. It is a hunger that begins first and foremost in himself because he's actually passionate about this. And then it flows naturally out of every single heart that has seen him for who he is. That'll drive missions. He is good and lovely and altogether wonderful. And the rest of his creation needs to know it. They have to know it. Every sinner currently separated from him needs to be shown his beauty and his grace. They all need it. I don't normally make a habit out of reading quotes to you, but well, this one's too good to pass up. And so about 15 to 20 years ago, John Piper set this foundation for why missions matters. I don't know if we got it on the screen, but I got it here. It's a longer one. It says this, Missions is not the goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. 
Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad, Psalm 97. Let the peoples praise thee, O God, let all the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, Psalm 67. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God and worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Psalm 104. Missions begins and ends in worship. If the pursuit of God's glory is not ordered above the pursuit of man's good and the affections of the heart and the priorities of the church, man will not be well served and God will not be duly honored. I am not pleading for a diminishing of missions, but for a magnifying of God. When the flame of worship burns with the heat of God's true worth, the light of missions will shine to the most remote peoples on earth. And I long for that day to come. Church family, sending and going are not things we do as a nice side project for the few who might be called. They are the knee-jerk reactions to hearing the news that there are some on this planet who don't know him yet. That's what it is. And the more and more and more we feast upon and celebrate the goodness of his glory, the more and more and more we will gladly spend ourselves for the sake of magnifying him. It won't be costly for us in that moment. It'll be the most natural thing that we could ever possibly do. It's not something we'll have to think about and weigh the cost. It's something that we can't contain, that we must respond to. Our posture here is not to build the nest and protect the house. Our posture here is to leverage people and resources to accomplish the greatest mission the universe has ever or will ever know. And this means that we will often joyfully get by with less so that we can celebrate giving even more. Even if it costs us some really valuable secondary thing. Even valuable people. We'd, we'd rather see his glory. It's far more important to us. And so, and so, so what, what, would we do, what would we do with this, right? Like, how can we possibly respond to, to God's word this morning? Is, well, listen, if, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, we respond the same way that we do every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God has revealed about himself in the text. But listen, I also think that we need to make a more consistent habit around here of asking God if he would send us. Not someone. Us. So not only are we going to give you a ton of options this week to grow in our effort to pray for the nations, we're also going to give you a ton of options this week to prayerfully begin asking that question. 
Does it sting when people say yes to the calling of God to go to the nations? Yeah, it does. It really does. Um, the loss of relationships, that, that hurts. That, like, I don't know if you noticed this, but the people who usually say yes to missions are often the best volunteers we have. There's a correlation there. Absolutely, it stings. But the joy that comes from sending them drowns all that out. Drowns all of it out. It's, I think it's been too long since we've tasted that joy for ourselves. If God were to ever give that to us again, I think we might actually end up liking it. We might like the taste. But listen, maybe he's not calling you somewhere else. That's fair. But listen, if he's not, there's no question what our role now is. We only got a couple of options. We need to start thinking through how to help the goers get there. As if there's one priority here. Because there's no third option. We send and we go. We send and we go. What if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Man, I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. Slogging through uh, something that's definitely marked for the church specifically. Listen, you can respond to God this morning by meeting Jesus. Before Jesus commanded his followers to go, he was a goer himself. That's what you need to know about that. Uh, The Bible teaches that we are all, by default, separated from God because of our sin. We are owed the perfect and righteous justice that is deserved for our sin. The Bible calls it death. But but God is rich in mercy, and he loves us with a great love. And that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God is the one who comes and makes us alive again. So how does he do that? Jesus was a goer. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. He laid aside what was owed to him, what was deserved by him, and he took on the form of a servant. He came near. He provided for your every need. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make payment for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the one who conquered both sin and death, he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith. Repentance is a churchy word, but it means to turn away from all of your efforts to be Lord and King over your own heart and life and instead trust Him instead as Lord and King. Faith isn't another Bible word, churchy word, but it's just the Bible's word for trust. It's a trust that, that lays down all of your attempts to pretty yourself up before Him and instead trust His work on your behalf to save. You can do that this morning. You can meet Jesus. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a moment set aside for us to begin to put action to whatever God might be stirring in your heart. And I'd love to be helpful to you. I will be standing down front here if you want somebody to talk to. But whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together as a church family. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the privilege of not only rescuing us, but inviting us along into your rescue of others. 
I know what little I bring to the table. The idea that you would ever use me in your cosmic story feels ridiculous. God, thank you for bringing me along. I'll confess that it's really easy for me to take my eyes off of what you've called me to and worry instead about other lesser things. Not that those things don't matter. They just they matter less. Guard my attention. Help me not get distracted. Help me prioritize things the way they ought to be prioritized. God, would you maybe send me? I don't know what that looks like. And you may say no. Help me take the next step and send others. Oh, but may I never doubt what you would do. Would you help us as a church family not only celebrate the good things you've done through our sending of others, but maybe send some of us as well. You've been good to us. Would you be better still? Father, for those here who may not know you, would you make yourself known right now? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? Would you draw men and women into your kingdom this morning by your grace? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.